Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Are you sick of owning an expensive, polluting metal box called a car? Me too. Mine sits in the garage taking up real estate and costing me a bomb in maintenance and repairs. Car sharing schemes have long been touted as the solution to such wasteful car ownership. The idea is simple. Use an app to open the door of the many cars dotted around your city, do your thing, park it and walk away. Voila, why buy the book when you can join the library, as they say. It sounds great, but car sharing has had a long and painful history of failures and false starts. The first scheme was started in 1948, and since the early 2000s, there have been dozens of startups around the world trying to make it work. Mevo, a car sharing scheme based in Wellington, is the latest to give this model a crack. I'm joined by co-founder Eric Zeiderfeld to explain his vision for reducing emissions, solving gridlock, and why this time car sharing will finally succeed. So Eric, thanks for joining me on this climate business. Hey, awesome to be here. Thanks for having us. That's an absolute pleasure. Uh, so I, I'm a long-time user of CityHop, which I think is a, a you know kind of similar sort of service, and that operates in Auckland and Anna Wellington and Christchurch, I believe. Is there room for another car sharing scheme? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at how many cars there are on the road, and you think about the fact that just Central Wellington spends a billion dollars per year on car ownership, those cars are used. Four percent of the time. How how much? Uh, four. Four. <laughs> it's not a, a great billion, number, is it? it, it a billion it, dollars used at four percent. So when it comes to car ownership versus car sharing, and uh, I'd say, do you think there's really more room on the roads for more car ownership? Because I know Wellington City Council and Auckland Transport's position, which is um, reduce car parking which means not a fun user experience for the car owners. But when you have access to every car park around the city and you can drive where you need to go and ditch the car, it actually um, becomes a little bit better. That's a great idea, isn't it? Tell us how it works. How, how does Mevo work and how is it different, say, from other car sharing schemes that we might know? Yeah, quick, um, quick car share 101 for everyone. There's about effectively three different operating systems, if you if you will, when it comes to car sharing. So there's the peer-to-peer, the Airbnb of car sharing that mm-hmm. um, you use someone else's car. That works great for multi-day trips, but it has the awkward key handoff thing and someone runs late and, you know, someone trashes your car and all those, all those downsides. <clears throat> then there's what's called back-to-back car sharing. So that's similar to, um, you know, some competitors in the market. And that's actually effectively slightly innovated car rental. So just to ex- go- say that to him again, sorry, Eric, you just, you just broke up a bit oh, when you yeah. used the actual, no. the actual word. Say, say the term again. Yeah, no, it's back to base. Back to base. So uh-huh. round, round trip car sharing. So it's, it's slightly innovated car rental effectively. Um, some of the other providers, how it works is you've got a car in a location, often mm-hmm. in the public, and you have to book it in advance and say, okay, next 
Thursday, the 27th, I'm going to book online a car from 9.30 a.m. And I'm going to bring it back the next day at 2.30 p.m. And so there's quite a bit of forward planning and thinking and, you know, the world just doesn't really work that way. And then you have, they they mail you out a swipe card, which is a little bit 1980s. Um, and you walk up and you swipe the card to get into the, to the car, as long as the person before you brought the car back on time. That's, in the right, that's the case. And packed it in the right place. Correct. Correct. And then there's effectively what we operate, which is called free floating car share. Um, I used to spend lots of time explaining this to people and then the scooters launched, which made my life wonderfully easy. <laughs> so it's uh, and, and stoked that there's, there's scooters out there. Um, another great piece of the puzzle. So you open our app, you find the car closest to you, you know, it's there, you press reserve, you walk up and you press unlock. That's it. You use it as long or as short as you want. So five minutes, five hours, five days, five weeks, um, and then we have what's called a home zone. So pretty much the entire central city, the airport and some of the outer suburbs. And you park in any car park, press end trip, job done. That's it. it nice any car, uh, so there's a couple of things I, I think make a difference to what you've just described. One of them is, is apps, right? Apps yeah. and ubiquitous internet has really changed so much of access to, uh, you know, uh, whether it's whether it's Uber or Airbnb or Spotify, that mm-hmm. ubiquitous internet and apps and smartphones has really transformed so much of our experience. Is is that a key difference? Do you think is the ability to to mm. know using an app, you know, to to know where a car is parked and geolocated and all that stuff? A hundred percent. So, I mean, in your intro, I thought it was it was really. Um, it set the scene in a really interesting way because I'd, I'd, I'd put the question back to you. The computer chips in our computers and our phones used today are not the ones designed and used last year, the year before, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Hmm. My question in, in response would you, and I mean, probably most of your listeners are familiar with Moore's Law, so you know, computer chips double in processing speed per dollar every, I think it's every year mm. or it's, it's something along those lines, but it's um, exponential. The question is, did that mean every single computer chip ever made in the past failed? Or did it mean that there's a new version that's come out that built on the learnings of that last one and made mm. it even better? And the, what I would what I would posit is with Mevo, that's exactly what we're seeing. So the, the technology is constantly evolving. The model of operation with car sharing and really just access to mobility is evolving. Mm. And so we see these other outdated versions, similar to other outdated uh, computer chips that have been used in the past. And that's, that's just how business and how innovation works often. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, is really cool. I, I really enjoy, but it's, it's yeah. one of these things like you mentioned with Airbnb and, and, um, Spotify and the others. Thankfully, I, I certainly enjoy it. Our society's moved to services on demand when you need it, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't have to fuss around. And the other thing is we've moved from services on demand to um, access over mobility, or sorry, access over ownership. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we've done it with media and we're seeing the same thing happen now with the network effect with mobility. 
Sure, sure. That that's a, a really great analogy with music, isn't it? You know, my record collection uh, now sits as some sort of archival museum piece in my daughter's bedroom. Uh, it's heavy. It's cumbersome. She likes it for the nostalgia value. I, I'm mm. into Spotify because now I've got access to all of that prog rock that used to exist only on yeah. scratch records. So yeah, that that technology, that Moore's law of computer power and the ubiquitous internet has completely changed my experience of music. And you're saying that that's changing the experience of mobility and transport. Oh, absolutely. So I live up a big hill in Wellington and I have great intent to run. Uh, ironically, we were just talking about ubiquitous internet and um, and it dropped <laughs> out. So <laughs> hey, you're saying I, you, you, you live up, you live at the bottom of a hill or maybe the top of a hill and you have great intentions to do something. Mm, great intentions to run to and work. And I do but every once in a while, but I also often will grab a car from somewhere close to the office on the Mavo network drive home, end my trip there, and there's usually a few of my neighbors who've done a similar thing. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning, I wake up, I'm, you know, drinking my coffee, and I, I will, if I'm not running on location, uh, <laughs> I'll reserve a car, walk out, drive it into central Wellington, end my trip in the middle, and then, you know, half an hour later, I'll look and the car's gone. Someone else has grabbed it to go take meetings or whatever that looks like. Yeah. The second major change I sense with your business compared to previous rideshare, uh, car share, and we'll get to rideshare in a minute, but uh, mm -hmm, car mm -hmm. share schemes is this um, home zone free parking arrangement you have with Wellington City Council. Tell, tell us about that and why, how did you do that deal for a start and, and how has it made a difference? Well, I think, you know, the, the really important thing is focusing on what Mevo is set out to do, which is to help build more beautiful and livable cities by um, creating a great alternative to private car ownership. That's what we do. And when we look at that, we go, okay, well, that all sounds really nice. What are the numbers? And Wellington City Council recently did a survey of about a thousand car share users, um, pretty solid international methodology. So it's used the same methodologies used around the world and tested by UC Berkeley. Um, for every car share vehicle in Wellington, there's about 11.4 vehicles that have been taken off the road. So if you're walking down the street and you count 10 cars up and then you imagine mashing them together into one and think mm. about all the space that that creates, that's pretty magic. So with that, we're able to really help these meet their objectives that they've been elected for and that they've put their hand up and committed to delivering. Mm. Um, so what we do is we actually pay for the parking, although we're in conversations around subsidizing to help us grow faster and meet those objectives even faster. Um, and just use technology. We just pull out the data. We know where all of our cars are all of the time. If the doors are open, if the engine's on, obviously we have brilliant privacy for our users and we, you know, have been through, DIA security checks to service government as well. So, you know, it's, it's pretty solid, but um, we just pull that data out and run, run it through um, the calculations that need to happen and bundle that into the pricing. So the nice thing for the council is they solve this uh, congestion problem, or at least they begin mm -hmm. to, plus they haven't lost any 
parking revenue. That's what you're saying because you're actually paying for the parking. Correct, correct. And what it means is right now in cities, about 30% of the congestion is just people driving around looking for car parks, mm. which is crazy. It, it is mental, isn't it? It is absolutely mm. mental. I mean, the, the, the whole commuting to work and sitting in a, in a box, one person, one car is, is insanity defined. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the um, uh, one of the phenomenons that has um, seems to me has happened is this shift towards a um, micro mobility. I suppose it's called as uh, uh, yep. scooters, cycles, walking. Do you see yourself as part of that, or do you see yourself more as kind of part of the still the car living set? Uh, you know, are, are petrol heads st- still going to be? Um, you know, maybe I'll rephrase the question. Do you see yourself as kind of part of the agitation to change cities to be more accessible through micromobility? Yeah, so I think, like I said earlier, micromobility is a brilliant piece of the puzzle. Um, I think the greater, there's two macro trends that are coming in over the top of that. One would be um, access over ownership, which we've talked briefly on. The second is a move from single mode. You know, Auckland's a great example. You live far away, you have a car, the bridge breaks, you spend three hours in traffic. That's how it works, right? Um, So we're moving into multimodal transport um, and the ubiquity of technology and internet makes that feasible where it wasn't before. It was just the transition costs were too high. Whereas now it's, an app does all the work for you. So just if explain you, that with an example. Yeah. So a perfect example is I might open my, open my, decide I'm going from one place to another, grab a scooter, um, hop to a meeting that's really close by because I know that's the right mode, have a meeting, then grab Amiibo, drive out to the airport, drop the Amiibo off at the airport, jump in a plane and fly off to see family for the weekend. Right. Those are three different modes, including mm-hmm. some walking and, and whatnot in there. Same could be said for public transport. You might grab a scooter to your nearest train route, train out somewhere, and then jump an Amiibo to go where you're going to the end point and back to the train at the end. So all of that becomes actually fairly seamless mm-hmm. um, with good technology. And the difference being when you own a car, if you think about this, whether you pay $2,000, $20,000, $200,000 for your car, whatever your number is, you've just subsidized every future trip yourself. So while it might be $5 worth of petrol in your mind when you're making a, a rational decision about, okay, it's $5 if I take my car, it's $10 if I take the train, or you know, $10 if I take the Mevo. With all of that, you're actually, you know, depending on what your first number was, how much you spent on your car, give or take the average number is 40 to $50 of depreciation a day before you pay for registration, before you pay for fuel, before you pay for everything else. And so when you go, oh, okay, to go there, it is actually $55 cost out of my pocket to use my car. That $10 Mevo starts looking pretty damn attractive, especially when it's a brand new Audi. We're going to come to your Audis in a minute. Uh, a, a mate of mine is an architect who builds, uh, designs apartments, and they had the genius idea that what they should do is start 
charging an extra hundred grand per car park just to see, just to test how much mm-hmm. appetite people have for buying a, a, a car park with an apartment. Funnily enough, when it was quantified like that, people realised they weren't prepared to pay. So previously, it's a bit like your car ownership analogy. The analogy mm-hmm. is that the cost of that car park was built into the real estate of the of the apartment. By mm. quantifying it, it has really sharpened the focus to say, do you really value the car park that much that you're going to be prepared to spend $100,000 on it? The city of Sydney, a couple of years ago, um, there's some really good thinkers in that, in that um, organization. They passed a law that it is illegal to list an apartment coupled with a car park. You have to separate it out in the city of Sydney. Um, Wellington Central, you're looking at fifty to hundred thousand dollars of opportunity cost. So when yeah. we think of building our cities, it's exactly that. Now, one one of the motivations for micro mobility is reducing emissions by getting people out of ice vehicles, you know, burning fossil fuels mm-hmm. and using using electric power or using you know pedal power or or the old Shanks pony, as they used to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, how does Mevo address emissions concerns? Do you think overall there will be a reduction in emissions as a result of people taking up Mevo? I think this is a case of heuristics and caution. So what I mean by that is there's rules of thumb that sound great and work well. 90, 80% of the time. And in, in what you were saying, I kind of caught a little bit of that. What we're looking at is going, hey, there's this renaissance, this booming of knowledge that's propagating throughout the business world about shit. Well, we're pretty good at monitoring our PL, we're pretty good at monitoring our costs, and we know how how to measure and implement management on that. What we're getting to now is the point where we go what's our carbon cost? All of a sudden, this infinite resource that we never had to even consider that we got for free, nature provided it. We go, ooh, that's not infinite. Maybe we should monitor that. Maybe we should manage that. And, and cost incentives are coming through to do that, whether it's consumer-driven or you know, emissions trading scheme-driven, um, and, and often both. So that's a, that's a bit of a long-winded way to say we need to be absolutely objectives-focused, which means what is the net carbon position at the end of the, um, end of the activity, be it jumping on a scooter, jumping an Amiibo, running a giant petrochemical company. Whatever that looks like, we need to actually be really transparent, and that's, that's what is being regulated now. So... Mm-hmm. Taking all of that into account to answer your original question, and, and thanks for bearing with me on that one. Um, what we're looking like is micromobility is good in theory, and it's going through a rapid innovation period right now. Uh, the actual carbon footprint of the journey itself, just using the scooter is, is not that bad, but because the public's still evolving its behavior to take care of the scooters, they're actually being trashed every six weeks to three months. Mm-hmm. And because of the batteries and the manufacturing and everything, the current position on scooters is worse than driving a car. Hmm. Worse. And there's, and, there's, and there's peer-reviewed research out there. I believe it will get better with time. 
And I am absolutely pro micromobility. It's just still evolving. You know, when we first started running Nevo, the cost per car was enormous. It made no sense whatsoever, but we knew the cost management would evolve so fast that it would get there. So mm -hmm. when we look at what we've done with Mevo, we actually, one, manage our carbon incredibly well. So just the production emissions of the cars, if you're replacing 11 cars with one, that becomes 100 ton of emissions not produced, 150 if it's battery electrics, right? And then what was we measure? We met absolutely to reducing our emissions in line with science-based targets. So per kilometer emissions are already sub that of 1990 levels travel. So that means we've already met our, our commitments under the Paris Accord. Um, and then the final piece is we offset any of the remaining emissions um, more than 110%. Uh, so that we go 120 for all of our consumer and 200 for all of our government travel. Mm, so that means every trip is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere as a net effect. Yeah. And we, um, we actually have, you know, a good number of companies either already following that criteria or signing up commitments to. So Ikea, H&M are committed to in the next, it'd be about the next 15 years, Greater Wellington mm -hmm. Regional Council, 1% of Wellington's total emissions have committed to delivering a climate positive position by 2035. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to see this entire flip of our global economy, I believe, from a carbon emitting economic engine to a carbon sequestering net negative carbon um, across the globe, which is what yeah. we have to do because we're outside of our, our bounds. Part of your solution, I think it was the second part of your uh, uh, strategy for dealing with emissions is the kind of cars you're buying, right? So you've got a fleet mm -hmm. of Audi hybrids, am I right? Yeah, we run a mixture of, of the fleet. We right now have Audi plug-in hybrids. Um, we're running some really efficient internal combustion engine vehicles. And that seems counterintuitive, but one, they're actually more efficient from an emissions perspective than the plug-in hybrids. And two, the unit cost is so much lower. It means we can offer a lower price to our end user, mm -hmm. which means we open the market up and still have a, a wider and more significant carbon position, like carbon impact in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. um, we are working with ECA, which is a, a government agency to get a whole bunch of battery electric vehicles on the fleet. And we've got a commitment of a hundred in, in the near future. So all positive steps, but sometimes it's a little counterintuitive as well. Yeah, sure. Um, well, Rome wasn't built in a day. So tell me about the road to Rome. How's the business going? Let's start with maybe some numbers. How many vehicles do you have in the fleet at the moment? So we actually just focus on the number of trips and the number of users, because like I said before, um, a vehicle does 10 times the work of a normal vehicle. So mm -hmm. what we do say publicly is we're doing thousands of trips every month taken by thousands of users. Um, and with that, we had our record trip count in September, which after the year that's been, that's a really nice position to be in because we actually, we totally, um, for safety, shut down operations in April. 
I understand that uh, you taxis were allowed and Uber was allowed to continue as essential services, but you weren't allowed to continue during lockdown. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, look, the country made a series of brilliant decisions that led us to be a world leader in our response to COVID. In that, there were some bad decisions made as well. And we very publicly and very clearly articulated why the decision to have us shut was a bad decision. Um, if you think about a car with no one else in it that's cleaned right, like very regularly with medical grade um, UVC sterilizers compared to an Uber with a driver in it taking people around who's been exposed to dozens of people a day, that doesn't really stack. But such is how it went. And mm-hmm. we live to see another day. And you survive. We, um, that's right. It's nice to be where we are. Now's as good a time as any to interrupt this interview with a wee promotion. That's right, it's an ad, but I promise it will be relevant to you and won't take a minute. In about two weeks' time, on November the 11th and 12th, there'll be the 2020 Climate Change and Business Conference at the Aotea Centre in Auckland. You could register now to attend in person or by live stream. The event's probably the most important gathering of climate-related business leaders, politicians, scientists and general troublemakers in New Zealand. It's run by the Environmental Defence Society and is in its 19th year. The theme this year is Redefining Our Future, which I guess is no surprise because it's using the COVID recovery to ask how do we lead with the level of ambition and hope that the climate crisis requires of us and future generations deserve from us. As I said, you can register for this event to either attend in person or by live stream, and you can do that at this website, climateandbusiness.com. Or if you want to know more about the conference, you can visit my webpage, thisclimatebusiness.com, to see more. Right, I told you it would be short. Back to the show. I was in the middle of asking you how the business is going, so you've given me some metrics about uh, the number of trips, which is great, and your experience with COVID. How are you feeling about expanding out of Wellington? Is that your ambition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a network company. So the more cities we're in, that means even more value to our end users. Um, so it's about, we were, but, oh, I was going to say we were set to launch in, in Auckland this year. Obviously, if things got thrown up in the air. So, uh Definitely still planning to expand up into Auckland and other centres um, in the short term and then looking offshore when things kick back to normal or closer to a new normal with international travel. Mm. I mean, it's such a transportable model, right? It's a business innovation. It's a, it's a business model innovation. So that is deployable mm. in any city, right? Any city that's got um, issues with transport, which, you know, it's hard to imagine they're a city that it doesn't have problems with transport what would be a logical next step for you out of New Zealand so effectively you're looking for an environment we know that the if you think of it from an ecosystem approach the the if this is a species the the business innovation it's evolved to work well in an environment so you want to look for a similar-ish environment um so some of the Canadian cities look really good. Uh, some of the Australian cities look really good, and they share fairly similar DNA um, to Wellington and to Auckland. Um, car sharing is working really well in Europe, so we're seeing lots and lots of car shares kick off up there. 
North America is taking a bit of time to get going in terms of, sorry, um, more the United States. Canada is kicking off fairly well. So those are the ones that are top of our mind at the moment. Um, I think the UK has some, some really good legs as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, go for it. Uh, well, I'm interested to know how the business was founded and, and was backed. Tell us about the beginnings of it. How did you and um, Finn, I think, is your business partner, how, how, how did you meet and you know what gave you the impetus to start? So we actually both grew up in Nelson. So we met through, um, through mutual friends and we're kicking off you know early in our earlier in our careers and we wanted to have a really fulfilling project that made really large-scale systemics change to effectively building a world that was better to leave behind you know um and there was a fairly calculated approach to looking at where that change could be and uh, i'll try and i'll try and cut a long story short but <clears throat> if you follow impact positive or negative, it's usually tied to a dollar in, in the economy. And you go, cool, well, where's the money being spent? And it's largely in cities. And then you go, well, if you break it down again, where does it go? And it's, housing is the highest purchase that people make, and a car is usually the second highest purchase someone makes. And again, coming back to that 4%, you go, great, well, really low bar, really big market. Um, and vehicles in New Zealand turn over about every 20 years, whereas housing turns over every 100. So actually some, some opportunity for fairly quick change. And the net opportunity there is, is solid. So we, yeah, both looking to make that type of change. Um, and this was the area that had the most opportunity. Um, and then we kind of took the obstacle is the way approach. So we went, well, why hasn't it already happened? Let's go figure that out. Policy was a big one. Um, and that's not the fastest thing in the world to solve, but we've mm. had some, some pretty great support from Wellington City Council and Auckland Transport now as well. Um, so policy, then proving the model out in a local sense. So we've been, been doing that over the last few years. Um, and then figuring out who's aligned uh, to see this sort of change happen. And what may seem a little counterintuitive to people is... Uh, large transport energy providers, fuel companies, um, if they see a future for themselves and if they have the chops in terms of a, an analysis and strategy team, which um, you know, Z Energy is who I'm getting to really does, they go, oh shit, there's a future without our core product. And that becomes a risk to shareholder value. And there's, there's the value alignment of the type of future they want to see as well. And so Z Energy has been uh, our largest investor, along with a number of high net worth individuals um, and some angel investors and, and the like. So, you know, and the same same could be said for a visionary future of our city. So we've been really lucky to work with Ian Castles, um, who was one of our very first investors. Mm -hmm. um, because he has a vision for the future of Wellington. And so those, all, all those values align and all the future aligns and we go, well, a future without petrol looks like, you know, electric shared multimodal on demand access to mobility. So the, the value delivery moves in the stack, but it's, it's still roughly the same area. Um, what, gave, what gave you the courage to take the punt instead of getting a job? Um, I had, a, I had a great job before I was, um, running, I was 2IC for an international travel company, glad to be out of travel right now. Um, 
And I got to jump all over the world and write really fun strategy. And we had a great execution team, which is always the best thing you want as a strategist. Um, but this needed to happen and it wasn't. And it was one of those moments where I, I guess maybe it's part of growing up. You recognize, oh, they'll fix that. And you go, well, wait, who's they? Because <laughs> they're not doing it. It needs to be fixed. And, and it kind of just, it was a moral imperative almost. My, um, my other job certainly paid better. <laughs> they often do. How are you feeling about where New Zealand is at in terms of its sustainable development? Uh, you know, we, we, have a, we have a great story. We have great rhetoric. Uh, are we living up to that? Uh, in short, no. Um, but I think if we look at it in a, our, our founding value as a company five, six years ago before it became popular, and I'm really happy it is, is, is kindness. And so if we take a kind approach to that question, we go, are we doing well enough? No. Short answer is no. Are we being kind on ourselves in that answer? And it's like, well, let's simply empower as much positive progression as we can. And then we go, okay, well, what does New Zealand have in spades? Is it outright power on the global front or is it influence? And it's certainly not the first, right? Nor is Sweden as a, as a really great um, counterfactual to this conversation. And we go, well, rhetoric is really important for influence. And delivery is, is equally as important. And that's where we're at right now. So I think if you look at what particularly James Shaw has been up to with support from the Greens and Labour, um, he's been out there as a technocrat building countrywide systems fairly quietly too. So the ETS review um, along with the Zero Carbon Act, those are huge that impact pretty much every part of government and our country. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Zed earlier. Uh, you, you mentioned Zed as a potential ally. A lot of the oil companies and the incumbents like them have resisted change and would do their best to put you out of business or at least make it difficult for you to operate. Mm. Uh, I guess there's two parts to that question. Have you found that kind of resistance from the incumbents and, and who are they? But also in what way could you work with those big companies like Azed to accelerate your change? So I think it depends on how you view risk as a, as a large organization. Because if short term, it's, it's a short term and a long term risk question. You can try and block us in the short term, but if we fail because you blocked us, someone else will come up and then someone else will come up. And in the long term, the business model is simply going to win. There's not going to be petrol stations. It's as long as the and logic is there, right? If it's not you, it'll be somebody else. That's what you're saying. Totally. And you can either be, you know, you can, you can either be part of what's happening or you can be Kodak. <laughs> right and the others the other really incredible supporter that we've had journey i didn't mention before or missed me um and should mention is track group who sorry oh, say the name again we just had another internet that's just at the critical moment where you said oh, no. 
the the other the other party that um, has been a massive supporter is the Gill Trap Group. So they have Volkswagen New Zealand, Audi New Zealand, Skoda New Zealand, and a host of other auto um, businesses. And they've been right beside us this whole way. So you've got big New Zealand auto, big New Zealand fuel and transport energy um, all on this journey with us, which is is pretty incredible. I mean, Colin Giltrap is the original petrol head. Well, I had a, I had a running conversation with some of our stakeholders. What we're going through right now when it comes to uh, – Mobility is not the is not the end of cars, and it's not the end of car ownership. Um, in the very same way that the equestrian industry is probably more valuable today than it's ever been before. People still ride horses, but for pleasure, and they take great pride in beautiful saddles and riding clubs and horse trekking or whatever that looks like. And the, the total dollar spent on it, I'm sure, is more today than it was 100 years ago. The only difference is there's no horses tied up outside of Parliament on, on most, on a good day at least. On most days. Sometimes, Sometimes the tractors, yeah, <laughs> snap. <laughs> um, tell us about the, 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 the near-term future for you. So, well, you know, Wellington, COVID has obviously been, and this year is, is a difficult year, right? So will, can we expect to see Mevo and other parts of New Zealand very soon? Certainly over the next 12 months. So we've got the model working. Like we've knocked the bugger off. Like the hard part's done. That doesn't mean getting down the mountain is safe. Right. So as we as we expand, we know that the core economics of what we do stack up like we can definitely make money and support our customers and make positive change with what we're doing. So now it's about scaling up. Now it's about really good communications. Now it's about really, you know, operational excellence and running a bloody brilliant team, which we have. I'm very, very thankful for their work is incredible. And, and what is your uh, sense of uh, your time frame personally? Is this is this your life's work, or is this just going to be one expression of multiple activities, multiple businesses? I certainly hope it's the second. I mean, it's a pretty like we we stated right from day dot that we'd be looking at getting five cities with two thousand cars operating. Um. We're not, we're not there yet, but it, that part doesn't feel too far away. And it felt like a really big mountain down at the bottom. Um, and at that stage, you're, you're, you're well on your way to a billion dollar business. Um, following on, I, I mean, if that's my life work, that's a pretty cool thing to have achieved, you know. <laughs> but I, I do hope I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live long enough um, to deliver a few more projects as well. Well, all the best, and uh, Jesus, it's been great having you on the show. I'm sorry about all the internet glitches, but um, we got there in the end. So, uh, Eric Ziderfeld, thanks for joining me. Thanks for um, answering the hard questions and for opening up a whole new line of business for New Zealand, and we wish you all the best. Hey, thanks so much for having me and looking forward to listening to some more good shows. Great. Thanks. All right. Cheers, Vincent. Bye. Well, thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. 
I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.